0: So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 6 and what I'm going to do like I I did before is I'm going to read verse 1 of chapter 6 because we need to understand that verse 1 is kind of this umbrella that goes over the rest of the the passage through verse 18. So I'm going to read verse 1 and then I'm going to skip to verses 16, 17, and 18 and it'll be up on the screen that way too. So uh, Matthew chapter 6 verse 1 Says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 16 says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, take this this time and, and bless the reading of your Word. I pray that your Spirit would come and illuminate your Word. I pray that... That the Holy Spirit would do His job, which is convict us of sin, illuminate the Scripture, sanctify us by the the washing of the water with the Word, point us to Christ. I pray that uh, we would do that, that 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 would happen during this time, that Christ would be exalted in what we learned today. And I thank you for what you're going to do. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So as you can tell from the reading this morning, we've moved out of the Lord's Prayer and we're finishing this particular section in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's been almost three months since we started the Lord's Prayer and it's been almost a year since we started Matthew's Gospel. And so what I want to do is use a little bit of time today in introduction And uh, catch us up in Matthew's Gospel and in the sermon so that we can remember the context of what we're learning. And the reason that this is necessary is that we have to know what we're reading in order to properly understand it, in order to properly interpret what's being said. The Bible, like we have it, is a collection of 66 different books or historical documents. And so... We don't read Matthew, which is where we're at. We don't read the Gospel of Matthew like we read the Psalms or like we read the book of the Revelation or like we would read the TV guide or a menu at a restaurant. They're not the same. They're different types of literature. And so we have to remember that. And that's why I want to use this time. And this is a key point in understanding the Bible, is is understanding the context, knowing who wrote the what you're reading. Who did he write it to? Why did he write what he wrote? What was he trying to accomplish? When you know those things. Then you can. It becomes easier to interpret scripture. This is not a, a magic globe. Or magic ball. That we just kind of hover over. And hope that God you know, downloads something into our brain. We just read it um, for what it is. And, and the Holy Spirit will illuminate it. And, and apply it to our hearts. And so we need to know these things. Um, we normally take smaller pieces of Scripture one Every week And so it's easy to forget the whole And so hopefully this kind of thing will, will help you understanding today Help you in your own study of Scripture And this won't be the last time that I do this As we work through Matthew's Gospel Because we need to remember what we're learning So, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain Or we're going to talk about the The context of this sermon In Matthew's Gospel And then I'm going to talk about this little section that we're in in the sermon and then we're going to talk about fasting in particular that's addressed in this passage and then we're, I want to answer the question what is Jesus doing? in this sermon he's preaching what is his point? Why, what is he doing? why is he saying the things that he's saying? so context of this sermon in Matthew's gospel we know first that Matthew is the author Matthew was a Jew He's also known by the name Levi, and he was one of Jesus' twelve disciples. He was a Jewish man, but he was also a publican, which means he was a collector of the Roman tax. So, Romans didn't like him because he was a Jew, and Jews didn't like him because he worked for Rome. So he was probably not a very well uh, accepted person, but Jesus chose Matthew to be one of his disciples. Now, most scholars and theologians read this and they see that Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience in order to prove to them that Jesus was the Messiah that they had been promised in their Old Testament scriptures. You know, up until even this day, the Jews, for the most part, do not accept Jesus as the Messiah, But Matthew was writing to prove that. And that's why you see in his gospel there are many times where he writes and then he says this was done to fulfill what was said by the prophet or as it has been written. And he explains remember the Old Testament. This is what was said. And he's, he's drawing those, uh, those connections so that his readers will, will understand this. He wanted to make sure that they saw the correlation between Jesus' ministry and his, his teachings and their Old Testament scriptures. If you want to flip one page over to chapter 3, um, that way your eyes can be can be looking at what I'm looking at. After the birth narrative and, and the infant years of Jesus in chapters 1 and 2, Matthew introduces us to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a man, he was a prophet, whose main goal was to prepare the way for the Messiah. And John preached in the wilderness regions and his message was simple, repent, repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he would preach and people would go out to hear him. He also had a baptism ministry. And he made the way for the coming of Jesus. And by the end of chapter 3, Jesus has come. He comes to be baptized by John. And when he's raised up out of the water... You know, God the Father speaks from the heavens and He says, "...this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased." And this was kind of this stamp of approval that God was saying, "...this is my Son, this is the Messiah." And remember, the Spirit descended on Jesus at that point. After His baptism in chapter 3, we move to chapter 4. Jesus comes up out of the water and it says that He's led off into the wilderness... To be tempted by the devil. And chapter 4 is a very popular piece of scripture where Jesus is in the wilderness and Satan comes to him to tempt him with different earthly pleasures. And Satan engages in this, this all out assault on the divinity of Jesus. Because he keeps on saying, if you are the son of God... Right after God had just said, this is my beloved son. And so Satan is is trying to challenge him and tempt him. And he tempts him with food and, and earthly power. Things that were all already his to begin with. Because he was God. And every time Jesus responded using Old Testament scriptures to combat with Satan. And then after that he, he comes from the wilderness and he begins his earthly ministry. And we read in chapter 4, verse 17, that Jesus began preaching, and His message was the same as John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So He begins preaching, and He traveled around, His, his teaching, His preaching was accompanied with miracles and signs and wonders, and those were God's attesting to the validity of the message Jesus preached. And so that brings us to chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Matthew devotes three entire chapters to just this sermon. So we can tell that Matthew considered this very obvious or a very important section. Now, because of the placement at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which is different in some of the other gospel recordings... we can can assume that Matthew wants to take the sum total of Jesus' main teaching and put it at the beginning so that we can wrap our minds around what Jesus had to say and then that would, would play itself out in the rest of His earthly ministry. And we can be sure that this sermon is probably the most crucial piece of teaching that Jesus ever gave. And that's why we're spending so much time on it. And that's why I want to make sure that we understand every word that Jesus is saying. Because when we get that, the rest of Matthew's gospel will kind of become more and more clear as we, we see what he was saying and what he was doing. So, that's where the sermon sets in Matthew's gospel. It's at the beginning. It's kind of shedding light on what Jesus had to say in his teaching. Now, we, we need to look at the context of where we are in chapter 6. Within the sermon. You guys remember that Jesus began this sermon with what we call the Beatitudes, and we spent a week on each one of those. And, and I hope you all remember that. If not, that stuff's on our website, and you guys can go back and listen to it. But we learned that in the Beatitudes, Jesus is giving a description of a Christian. He's telling us by what attributes we can determine whether somebody is a God fearing Christian. Person, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So, a true Christian is is titled here as one who is blessed. And the word "blessed," we learned, it doesn't mean that you've been blessed with a gift. Somebody give you, gave you something, but blessed is an intense inner joy and happiness that is not affected by outward circumstances. A Christian person is blessed; they have a joy that nobody can explain, that nobody can ever take away. And then he unpacks that. A Christian person is first poor in spirit. They mourn over their condition and sin. They're meek in their disposition. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful toward other people. They're pure in heart. They aspire to live at peace with others. And then after all of that, they're persecuted for being that way. True Christians will often face persecution because of the profession of faith that we make. And then after the beatitudes in chapter or verses 13 through 16 we learn that a Christian person is going to live differently in the world than the rest of the world. And we're compared to salt and light. And we learned that just like salt In a bland world and light, in a dark world, we are going to stand out just because of whose we are. Because we're Christians, we're going to look differently, act differently, talk differently, do things differently. And when the light of Christ shines forth from us in our actions, people will see that and they will in turn worship God because of that light that shines from us. And then Jesus changes gears in verse 17... He's just told what a truly godly person will look like. He's explained that these people will expect persecution. And then he, has to, he explains that he hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. That is the Old Testament writings, the Old Testament law. But rather, he's come to fulfill them. And it seems as if in Jesus giving the Beatitudes that maybe some would have thought... Wait a second. This is a new teaching. This is a a new theology that needs to be done away with. We don't want anything new. We've got the Old Testament Scriptures that God gave us. Don't give us anything new. But rather, Jesus explains. He's not come to teach anything new. He's just come to, to take what they had and fulfill it. To push the law and the prophets, the Old Testament writings, deep into the hearts of the people. To make it real to them. Until this time, most of what was considered religious was nothing more than outward show. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were extremely pious and holy, but all of their outward morality was just that. It was only outward morality. They prided themselves in obeying over 600 laws. They had invented laws to keep them from even getting close to, to the laws that God had given. And they thought that that was how we pleased God. Is obey the rules. Do what you're supposed to do. They, the reason they did this is because they were completely self-righteous. They thought if I can obey the rules and do what God has told me to do. And maybe even do more than God has told me to do. Then this is how we please God. And they had misunderstood the entire purpose of the law. And so Jesus says in verse 20... Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is to say, find the most holy men you know, examine their lifestyles, and then be better than them. If you want to obey the law in order to get to heaven, just be better than the most holy people you know. That was the only way that being obedient to the law would save you. And so he begins in verses 21 through 47 and he takes specific examples from the law of Moses and he shows how the law wasn't just about being outwardly right, but it was about a change of your heart. That your heart had to be changed. It required heart obedience. And all of that culminates in verse 48 of chapter 5 where Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see how that works? If you're going to obey the law, if you're, going to, if you're going to earn your way into God's kingdom, then you just be perfect. If you're going to obey the law, just obey it completely. Just be perfect like God is and you should be fine. It says in the Old Testament, over and over, be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Just be like God in everything that you do, all the time, and you will earn heaven for yourself. And then in chapter 6, he moves in to talking about the reason for practicing your certain religious habits. Now, these things aren't bad in themselves, but Jesus teaches us that we have to examine the motives. ...that we have for doing the things that we do. It's not just what you do as a Christian, but it's how you do it. You can do all the right things just like the Pharisees and still be so far from God. Because it's not just what you do, but how you do it. And we saw, we just read in verse 1 of chapter 6, "...beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven." what he's saying is, is as a true follower of God, there will be certain things that you do. There is a godly lifestyle that you will live out, but you have to understand also, there's a certain way you have to do it. There's a, a motive behind what you do that is different than why other people do it. So he started off with giving to the needy, and then he taught on prayer, which we just came out of. And then today we're going to look at this particular act of fasting all of that is the background getting us to where we are today. And we're going to come back to that at the end because I want us to understand what Jesus is doing in this sermon. And like I said, once we get that, a lot more of His earthly ministry will, will make sense. So we move to fasting in particular. In verse 16, Jesus says, "...and when you fast..." Now once again, this is not hypothetical, it's not a suggestion, it's not a tip. He doesn't say, and if you ever find it in your heart to fast, he says, when you fast. Fasting in its simplest form is going without food. The Greek word literally means no food. Now many people all over the world... Fast for some for religious reasons, some for health reasons. So we need to understand as Christians with a Christian worldview, what does the Bible say about fasting? How does the Bible portray fasting, and then what does that have to say to us? Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, in his book Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, defines fasting like this, and I'll, I'll read this a couple times so you can get this: fasting is abstinence from food for spiritual purposes such as prayer, meditation, or seeking God for a particular reason or exceptional circumstance. Fasting is abstinence from food for spiritual purposes such as prayer, meditation, Or seeking God for a particular reason or exceptional circumstance. Fasting is not a spiritual discipline like prayer. We should always be disciplining ourselves, but we can't always be fasting. If we never eat, we'll die. See how that works? The Bible says pray without ceasing. It doesn't say stop eating. So we need to learn... What the Bible says about fasting. How does the Bible teach? Fasting is, is meant to be used when we're seeking God in particular circumstances that are out of the ordinary as we feel led by the Holy Spirit. And I want to show you that from Scripture. I want to prove this to you because there are a lot of ideas out there about why you should fast, when you should fast. Does, you know Should you tell people that you're fasting? Should you pass, fast in public? Should you announce a public fast? Should you not? Um... So we need to understand this. So we're going to uh, look at several passages of Scripture. If you want to, you can turn with me through these. It'll be up on the screen if you don't want to. Um, Judges chapter 20 is going to be the first one. Judges chapter 20, and I'll read this. And I'll, and I'll explain these. And I've got eight examples. So that we're going to spend some time working through these. And just so I think you're going to get the picture. As to what the Bible teaches about fasting. And why and when God's people fast. So Judges chapter 20. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 24. Listen to what it says. So the people of Israel. Came near against the people of Benjamin. The second day. And Benjamin went out against them. Out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. For the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. Now as you can see there, you might have probably noticed the people of Israel are in a battle against the, the single tribe of Benjamin. This is infighting. These are their kinsmen. The Benjamites had already killed after this point, second day, 40,000 of Israel's men. Now Israel started out with 400,000 men and the Benjamites started out with 26,700. So the odds are in Israel's favor. But the Benjamites are putting a hurting On the Israelites. They're killing them. They're they're destroying them. So Israel doesn't know what to do. These guys are killing us. We have way more men. And they're killing us. What do we do? Should we keep on fighting? Do we go out and lose more of our people? God, what do we do? And what did they do? They fasted. They offered sacrifices. And they prayed. And God answered. The next one is 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I'll begin reading at the end of verse 15. It says, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted, and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said... While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So here, you've got this child who is the offspring of David and Bathsheba. The fruit of David's sin with Bathsheba. And according to the promise of God, the child is born is sick and apparently nearing death. Now parents, imagine you've waited nine months for a child, the child is born, and the doctors come to you and they say, child's not going to make it, we're just counting down the minutes. So you don't know. More than likely going to die, there's nothing you can do about it. You want your child to live, but you have nothing. You have no hand in it, you can't do anything about it. So what do you do? That was David's situation. And what did he do? He fasted. He prayed. He sought after the Lord on behalf of the child. And once the child died, he got up and stopped. What's the point now? There's nothing I can do. God has done what He said He would do. And now we go back to life as usual. Another one in Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8. I'll begin reading in verse 21. Ezra says then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him or to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves our children and all our goods for I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king the hand of our God is good for is for good on all who seek Him, and the power of His wrath is against all who forsake Him. So, we fasted and employed our God for this, and He listened to our entreaty. Now, in this story, Ezra is leading a group of people back to Jerusalem to worship in the newly rebuilt temple. They had enemies. There was danger on the way from, from robbers, from traps, ambushes, and they have no armed protection. They're just a group of people Walking in the wilderness. And so they fast. And they pray. They sought God. They implored God. And in verse 31 says, The hand of our God was on us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy, and from ambushes by the way. So they made it. God delivered them safely. In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. Beginning at verse 1, it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So here, Nehemiah has just received news. This is not new news. It's old news that the wall has yet to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, most of you know that the way this story plays out is Nehemiah ends up leading a group of people back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the walls. But at this point, he just hears the news. He's heartbroken over the city of God. And so he fasts and he prays. You're beginning to see the trend here. Good. The book of Esther, chapter 4, verse 16. Esther says, Go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now in the book of Esther, there, a decree is going out that all the Jews are going to be annihilated wiped out. If you know the Jews, kill them. Men, women, babies, destroy the Jews. Esther was the queen, but she was also a Jew and the king didn't know it. And so she's going to go in and implore on behalf of her people that he not send out this decree. The only problem is, it's against the law to go into the king's court without being summoned. For anybody, even the queen, you go in without being called, you're dead. But she can't wait to be summoned because the decree is about to go out. She says, I'm going in. I'm going to go in on behalf of my people and I may die. And what does she do? But she fasts and she declares a public fast and they pray. We just looked at Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus is led up into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. For the purpose. He goes into the wilderness. The sole purpose being Satan is going to come and tempt you. He's about to embark on his earthly ministry. Which will climax in his crucifixion on the cross. But before he starts his earthly ministry. Before he's tempted by the devil. What does he do for 40 days before that? He fasts. He goes without food. In Acts chapter 13. Verse 1 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menae, and a member of the court of the Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, this one's a little different, but it still proves the same point. In this example of fasting, those who were involved didn't know what was about to happen. As far as we can tell, they were just doing what they often did during those early apostolic times as they were worshiping and fasting, seeing what God was going to have them do next. And during this time of worship, the Holy Spirit comes... He tells them, set aside Saul, or as we know him as Paul, and Barnabas for something. They don't know what. Just set them apart. And so they do that. Now, they didn't know it at the time, but this would lead to the first of Paul's three missionary journeys. Which, of course, is how the gospel spread around the world. It came to the Gentiles. We are Christians. We are here worshiping because of what came out of this Worship gathering, more than likely, the most important worship service that has ever taken place in the church, apart from Pentecost. And what did they do? But they were fasting and praying, and they bathed the 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 setting apart of Paul and Barnabas with fasting and prayer. And then the next chapter, chapter fourteen. Verse 19 says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Now, once again, this is a very monumentous occasion. The apostles have preached the gospel. They have planted new churches. They're about to leave and travel on to the next destination. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for me, to the thought of starting a new work where the gospel had never been preached, planting a church where no church has ever existed, and then saying, Alright guys, I'll see you later. That sounds like a terrifying thing. To me, that's like leaving an infant at the park and saying, I'll be back in a couple hours, just have fun. It would be a lot smarter to make sure that there's somebody there who can take care of the child. And so that's what he's doing. They they, They appointed biblically qualified men, elders, and they appoint them and they bathe this appointment with fasting and prayer. He's about to leave. I mean, there, no church has ever existed. And these people are going to be attacked by, by what they call wolves, people from within, people from without, drawing away the disciples, teaching false doctrine, all these things. And so Paul says, i got to appoint some men. I'm going to leave you in charge. It is your job to make sure this church doesn't fizzle out and people aren't drawn away. And he appoints it with prayer and fasting. So you see... That all of those are exceptional circumstances. It's not just every day. Oh, I think I'm going to go without food today. It's exceptional circumstances where fasting took place. Now, in the Jewish sense of fasting, they did have a God-appointed day where they were to fast. The Day of Atonement. And they would fast and... Um, In the Old Testament it says they would afflict themselves, which most take to mean fasting. And during that fast they were not allowed to clean themselves. People would rub ashes and dirt on themselves. And the Pharisees in Jesus' day had taken that idea and they had, of course, elaborated on it like they often did. And they instituted their own fast days. They would fast twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. And this was just another way for them to show how holy they were. And they did it for the praises of men. And people would look up to them and say, Man, they're so spiritual. Look, he fasts twice a week. And you can see that in in Luke chapter 18, Jesus is giving the parable about the the Pharisee and the tax collector. And and the Pharisee's words are, I fast twice a week. I I give tithes of all that I have. And you remember that that parable was given to show the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. What Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6 is not that type of fasting. It's not the public Day of Atonement fast because everybody fasted then. Everybody knew that everybody else was fasting. There were particular rules. This type of fasting is that private fast that an individual or a group of individuals will take part in during special pursuits of God's intervention or action in a circumstance. Fasting in this way is never an end in itself. It's always done to accompany prayer and worship during a special chasing after God. So Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces That their fasting may be seen by others. Now the problem is fairly obvious. We're talking about the hypocrites again. Who are literally those stage actors. Religious stage actors. Who would do what actors do best. They would disfigure their faces. Or literally they would hide their faces. In order to be seen by other people. To be fasting. Now you can imagine this. Going without food. Is somewhat uncomfortable. I have... Become rather accustomed to food in my life and so to go without food would be uncomfortable and especially if the fast is taking place over a couple of days or a couple weeks you'll lose weight your breath starts stinking you get weak you get terrible headaches and you can imagine that that would have some sort of effect on your outward appearance or it could and so the Pharisees would take advantage of that and they would over exaggerate this Discomfort, so that everyone knew they were fasting. They only wanted to be seen by others. Now, the wording here, when it says they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others, the wording here in the original language is kind of funny. It's it's a kind of a play on words. They would disfigure, and that word means to disappear or hide or conceal. Just like ancient stage actors, they would conceal their face with a mask. But they weren't invisible. They hid their face so that they would appear to be something else. So, this is what he's saying. They would make their face disappear in order to reappear as something else. They would hide their face in order to reveal their face as something else. They would disfigure their face in order to refigure it as something else. That's what the hypocrites would do. Jesus says, don't be like them. Rather, He says, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Jesus' teaching here is that during those times when we are faced with a difficult circumstance or a challenge or a special event in our lives where we're led by the Holy Spirit... To pursue God above all else, beyond our normal Christian walk, when we're committing ourselves to focus on God like never before, in order to know Him better, know His will better, hear a response from Him, draw closer to His heart. Whenever our pursuit of God is more important than food, when you fast, don't let it show Rather, he says, anoint your head and wash your face. In other words, act normal. Act like nothing's happening. Clean yourself up. Look happy. Don't let your spiritual life show through just so other people can see. Our desire should be that God sees what we're doing. And God doesn't have to be a, see a sad face to know what we're going through. And the goal here, again, is that God, who sees in secret, will reward us. We are after that reward that only God can give. See, the hypocrites were fasting in order to be seen by others. That was their goal. That was what they were working for. That was their payment. And Jesus says, they have received it. They have received their reward. They want the praises of men. That's what they've got. And one second after they die, all of those praises will be gone. And they will be left to deal with judgment from God. We're not working for that goal. That's not why we do what we do. We're not slaves to the praises of men. We're slaves to God. We are after that reward that He will give us someday. Our fasting, our prayer, our giving to the needy, our righteous deeds are for God and Him alone. That's all that we're working for. That's all that matters is what God thinks and what God sees and the reward that God gives. And that's what is being taught here In his verses about fasting, there will be times when you are led to pursue God, focus on God, chase after God, desire something from God in such a manner that food is just a hindrance. Food will only get in my way at this point. Your physical well-being placed on the back burner. I need God. I don't need food right now. What I need is God to come through in this situation. And if you've never been there, then ask yourself, what are you passionate about? Have you never known a friend or a family member or a coworker who seems so far from God, so rebellious, so proud of their righteousness or their deeds, so obstinate about the gospel that more than anybody else, you know if that person is going to get saved, it will take a miracle. God's going to have to step in. Now, of course, we know that every salvation is a miracle, but we have children who we teach the Bible, we raise in church. It's a lot more likely that our children are going to receive the gospel well as opposed to others who seem so far. It doesn't matter what I say. They're so rebellious. They want nothing to do with it. I need God to step in or whatever situation it may be. If you've never been there at that point where it's like, I need God to come through more than I need food, then ask yourself, what are you passionate about? So Jesus assumes that these times will come. In Matthew 9.15, He actually says, when I'm gone, my disciples will fast. It will happen. But when you fast, don't let it show. Do it for God and not for others. So... As we see these three examples in this section, compiled with the rest of the sermon that we've studied so far, what conclusion do we come to about Jesus' intent with His sermon? What is He trying to do? Why is He saying the things that He's saying? A sermon is of no use unless the listeners know what the preacher is trying to get across. And so we need to know, what is Jesus trying to say? So let's think about this for a second. In the Beatitudes... What did he do? He told us what a real Christian looks like. What a real God-fearing citizen of the kingdom of heaven will look like. And then he prepared us for the response that that type of person can expect from the world. Now why would he need to tell his listeners and us what a real Christian looks like? It's because there were false Christians. These people were living amongst a religious system. They were being led and taught by Self-righteous, religious hypocrites who were setting a standard of morality that nobody could meet except themselves. The scribes and the Pharisees weren't bad people, outwardly. But in their hearts, they were completely self-righteous. Their hearts were filled with legalism and they looked down on everybody else who could not meet their standard. The average person like you and me who were just trying to please God would have felt completely inadequate all the time. And we see that in Luke 46 when Jesus says you load the people with burdens hard to bear. He said you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. You are delivering to this people a religious system that nobody can meet. Nobody can reach that standard. And then verses 21 through 48 of chapter 5. He's showing them examples from the law of Moses. Proving them that it's actually harder than even the Pharisees are doing. They're not even meeting the standard. If you want to go by the standard of the law, nobody can meet it. They were looking up to the scribes and the Pharisees, and Jesus said, you must exceed their righteousness. And then He gave those examples to show them how far their teachers were in reaching the standard. And in their self-righteousness, they had missed out on the whole point of the law. They were trying to be moral, be outwardly good, and they had missed the whole point. And then so far in chapter 6... He's teaching how to live a life that is righteous, and he does that by contrasting the lives in every example to the righteous, religious hypocrites. Every example. He says in verse 1 If you're doing doing it to be seen by others, you will have no reward. This is exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. They were doing it to be seen by others, and Jesus says, They have nothing, they have no part in my kingdom. And then in the three examples, in every example he gives a wrong way and a right way. You have the hypocrites who are sounding trumpets when they give to the needy, who are standing in the street corners in the synagogues when they pray, who are disfiguring their faces and looking sad and gloomy when they fast. All of those were examples of how the Pharisees were just doing things to be seen. And then you have the positive examples. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Pray in your closet. Anoint your head and wash your face. All of those were examples of an exaggeration that Jesus was using to say, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. There's no way that your left hand and right, they don't know anything. That doesn't work. You're not literally supposed to only pray in your closet. We don't literally pour oil on our heads when we're fasting. The point is, you don't do it for what people think. You only act, you only do your righteous deeds so that God... Can see them. It's between you and God. God is the one who matters. God's opinion is the one who counts. God's rewards are the eternal rewards, and that's all that matters. You say, well, hold on a second. What if I'm, you know, we want other people to see our deeds. We've got to think about the way we're living in front of others. But the answer to that is, if you live your life every day like God is the only other person in the room, the only one who ever sees everything you do, and He does see everything you do, then your life will be one that gives an example. That matters. Your life will be the one that people can look at and say, I want to be like that person. If you take into account only what God thinks. The minute we start worrying about what other people think, we're going to fall apart. We're going to crumble. What Jesus is doing is He's showing the difference between legalism and the gospel. He's combating the self-righteousness of the Pharisees with... The freedom in the gospel to live to the Lord. We have that freedom. I can—I only have to worry about what God thinks. In verse 48 it says if you're going to live by the law, then the standard is simple. Be perfect like God. That's similar to Galatians 5.3 where Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now some of you remember When we we talked about the ceremonial law, circumcision was the ceremonial sign of the covenant. And so Paul's saying if you want to go back to obeying the law, if you want to go back to that old system, then be my guest. But you've got to do every bit of it. You've got to live out that perfectly. And that was the attitude of the Pharisees. And that was the burden that they heaped on the people. Thank God Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We're set free from the curse. Jesus came to proclaim that message. The kingdom of God is a kingdom where the king lays down his life for the citizens. We are... Forgiven, We're set free from the curse. We're raised to new life. If you're a Christian, that is the most wonderful news you've ever heard. And you rejoice when you hear that. The law said, just be like God. And the gospel says, God's just going to come and be like you. The law said, here's God's standard. The gospel said, standard's already been met. So Jesus, in this sermon... The Sermon on the Mount. he's describing for his listeners what life, or what the life of true and honest godliness and piety looks like in contrast to the evil, back-breaking legalism that the Pharisees had purported for so long. Remember, Matthew's a Jew. And he's writing to Jews. He's trying to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And in doing this, he has to demonstrate fully and with doubtless reasoning that the religious system that this people have been subscribing to for all these years must come down until not one stone is left standing on another. It has to come down. And that's the message of this sermon. The message... Of this sermon, the message of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the message of the gospel we proclaim that God has a standard, and His standard is perfection. And if you want to live by the law, be my guest. But God in Jesus has come to live out the standard. He's died on the cross for our sins, He's absorbed our punishment, He's imputed His righteousness to us so that we can be freed from the curse of the law and be reconciled to our Father. That's the message. Of this sermon, that's the message of Jesus' ministry. That's the message that we proclaim. Yes, there is a standard, and yes, it has been met for you if you will trust in Christ. So, as we work through this sermon, maybe you're here now, and maybe you're thinking, "Well, that's the system I live by. I, I just be good. I obey the rules. I read." What the Bible says, I do what it says. If I just be good, God will be pleased. I got to be good so that I can earn my ticket to heaven. I got to be good so that God will be happy with me. And I'm here to tell you that will never work. You'll never be good enough. You'll never earn it. But the good news is that Jesus has already done all of that. You just trust in Him. On the cross, he said, It is finished. And that's what he meant. That standard is met. It's done. All the work is complete. You just trust in him. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. Christians, I know that sin gets you down. I know that. I know that you fail. I fail. And I know that it's hard for us to come to terms with this truth. Because we live in a world where everything is judged by a standard of what we're doing. Or what we did to earn what we've gotten. And that's hard. It's hard for us to live in a way that is gauged by the truth. So I'm going to say it again. And hopefully if we keep saying enough, someday we'll begin to live like we believe it. You are forgiven. It's done. The standard is met. When God looks at you, He loves you like He loves Jesus. Right now. You stand before God as forgiven, justified, nothing you can ever say or do will change that. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So don't let Satan trick you into going back under the curse of the law. Don't let Satan convince you that, oh, you've just messed up so much, God is upset, you're really going to have to try really hard to get your back, yourself back into God's good standing. Because you've been set free. He became the curse for us. You're forgiven. So live like it. Worship like it. Rejoice like it. That's the message of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the message of Jesus' ministry. And as we unpack it in in the months to come, I, I hope that becomes more and more evident that what Jesus is doing in His ministry specifically is attacking that system. He's destroying that system. He's showing how their religious system wouldn't work. (laughs) So let's pray.